Okay, here we go. <laughs> um. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. This week, we're delighted to have Emily Midorikawa back with us to discuss her new book, Out of the Shadows, Six Visionary Victorian Women in Search of a Public Voice, out now in both North America and the UK, as well as her research process, The Gift of Libraries and Librarians, Parenthood, Writing Partners, and how she's worked during the pandemic. Emily is a winner of the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. Her journalism has been published in, among others, The Daily Telegraph, The Paris Review, The Times of London, and The Washington Post. She teaches on the writing program at New York University, London. Emily is also the co-author of A Secret Sisterhood, The Literary Friendships of Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf, written with Emma Claire Sweeney and published in 2017. She collaborated with Emma on the long-running and excellent blog about female literary friendship, Something Rhymed. For more with Emily, you can listen to our previous interview with her and writing partner Emma Claire Sweeney from May 2019, and of course, find her online at emilymadorakawa.com, on Twitter at Emily Madorakawa, and on Instagram at Madorakawa Emily. And now, on to our show. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast again. And we're really delighted to have you back for a second time. Obviously, last time we were interviewing you with uh, Emma Sweeney, but you have a new book out and we both, Megan and I both read it and we love it. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but maybe you just want to introduce your book and kind of tell us about how it came about. Actually, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, so thanks very much for having me on. Um, it was lovely last time to come on and chat with Emma, and uh, it's great to be back again, this time on my own. So my book is called Out of the Shadows, Six Visionary Victorian Women in Search of a Public Voice. And actually, um, in a way, this book grew out of research for my previous book, which I wrote with Emma, um, A Secret Sisterhood, which was all about female literary friendship, as you know. Um, what happened was I was doing research for A Secret Sisterhood in New York, um, in the New York Public Library, reading letters from Harriet Beecher Stowe to George Eliot. Um, for, so for people who haven't read the book, um, these two were close pen friends. So they, they didn't meet, but they established a very strong literary friendship through their letters to each other. Um, in these letters, I noticed a reference to a young woman called Kate Fox, um, who I gathered from what Stowe was saying was some kind of spirit medium. Um, Stowe was very in, uh, enthusiastic about such things. Elliot, I have to say, much less so. Um, but you know, her letters to Elliot are full of sort of descriptions of seances she's attended, and um, on one occasion she talks about making contact with the ghost of Charlotte Bronte, which I think, again, Elliot was somewhat what skeptical about that. But anyway, in this particular anecdote, she talked about Kate Fox and I was quite 
taken with her descriptions of Fox, you know, who came across as quite almost like an otherworldly sort of presence. She talked about how at this particular seance, Kate was able to um, get phosphorescent lights to shine in the darkness of the room in which they were sitting. So it's very kind of atmospheric description. The other thing that really struck me though, was that Stowe seemed to assume that Elliot would really need no introduction to Fox, you know, and Elliot was a British woman on the other side of the ocean. So that told me that at the time, Kate Fox must have been someone who had quite an international level of fame. Now, because this book was not about spiritualism, it was not about seances, I had to kind of focus. Um, you know, I was had a lot of letters from Stowe to get through in quite a short period of time. Her handwriting was not particularly easy to read. Um, so, I, I, you know, I transcribed the letters, but I sort of just kept my focus on female literary friendship. But once I sort of been working on that book for a while, researching it, you know, writing it, once I would got past all that sort of thing, I found that these references to Kate Fox and also her sister Maggie Fox, who also appeared in the letters, just stayed in my mind. I thought I'll go back to those letters from Stowe and just sort of see what's there. Then sort of reading the letters made me want to go and find out more about these sisters. And of course, from there, you know, it, a whole world opens up to you, other women who were doing similar things at a similar time. And it really, really just came from there. Yeah. So if I can just fangirl a little bit about the book, what I really enjoyed, and we have more specific questions, but I really love, I'm really into the theme of just like how radical it is for women to talk about things that they intuit, let's say, or like it's a particular type of power that the women in your book actually display. And it gives them different types of access to different society. I thought it was really fascinating. So I guess it's not a question, but... I guess, okay, so the question is, why did you want to tell that particular story? It's obviously interesting, but I think, like, what do you think it means for us? Yes, so when I, initially, you know, I was just sort of trying to find out about this world of celebrity spirit mediums in the 19th century. Um, and, you know, there were many different people that I could have focused on, um, but I eventually sort of started to kind of, narrow down my focus thinking you know I just want to focus on a small number of people in this this book who is it what you know what 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 is there something that would sort of bring them together under a, a particular theme what's a particular theme that I'm particularly interested in and I realized that it was this idea of particularly female spiritualists which is obviously what I chose to focus on in the end this this link between spiritualism seances all that sort of thing. And like you say, speaking in public. Um, so that I think was the thing that kind of drew these women together, all of them in different ways for looking for a kind of a public voice, different motivations, different ways of achieving it. But I think that's something that really did kind of link them all together. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you you sort of focused in on this as well because I think these women were famous partially because of you know apparently they had this ability to contact the dead but also just the very fact that they were speaking in public was something that was just as novel actually as the fact that they were supposedly you know 
channeling thoughts of, of dead men you know that yes that 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 was novel but also just a woman getting up on stage and commanding a big audience in itself was a big draw in you know in just as important a way as, as someone who you know who sees supposedly contacting dead spirits I really love, yeah, I mean, I grew up in super religious family where women were still really not allowed to address like the, the whole group, right? Like you're not allowed to preach as a woman. Okay, you can sing, I guess. Um, and you're kind of decorative rather than able to speak. But there's also a symbolism, especially when they're contacting dead men, where it's like men are actually speaking through their mouths. And it's something quite radical about like that being a conduit as well. Anyway, I could talk about that for a while. But I just really love all the different kind of layers that that symbol has. And also obviously like the actual history is fascinating. Yeah, in, in the case of Emma Harding Britton, who was a British born woman who ended up moving over to the United States and finding great um, fame as a, as a, well, as a spiritualist, but also an orator over there, you know, occasionally she would be met with, you know, hostile questions at the end of a lecture. And she was often actually reminded, you know, of what it says in the Bible about women not speaking in public. And, you know, she would have to kind of negotiate that and try and find a, an answer that would be acceptable to her audience. No, it's super fascinating. Um, I'll just stop rambling about how much I like your book and let Megan ask a question. <laughs> I liked all of that. And I think what I think that you did that was so interesting is the way you tied these all of these women together, like Livia says, like through a, a focus that not everybody would have necessarily picked up on. Um, there was a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of information that I hadn't known. I mean, even growing up in the U.S., you know, hearing about Victoria Woodhull running for president, but that was the only, that's the only thing that I ever knew about her. And so all of the other things were, um, they were new, but the whole, you know, the layers of like business acumen that it took for them to, to, to pull all of these things together. But I think what I really liked a lot about it is sort of one of my own pet obsessions, which is the whole, um, you know, Victorians were not that different. They're just like us, you know, we haven't changed a lot since then. Um, so what was, what were some of the things that you discovered in writing the book that were maybe the most surprising or interesting to you? Well, apart from, you know, what I've already said about this idea of it being quite so novel for women to be, um, speaking in public like this I, I think I was really interested in what a female dominated world this could be so obviously we think of rightly we think of you know Victorian society as being kind of quite patriarchal and um, women not generally being in, in positions of power and I should say it wasn't entirely dominated by women the spiritualist scene though seeing there were many prominent male spiritualists as well but it did seem to be um a world in which women were able to flourish um, in ways that would have been impossible really within Victorian society at large. Um, I think that there were sort of various reasons for this, but one of the reasons actually was kind of tied in with ideas of what it was to be female. So, you know, women were often regarded as the more sensitive um, gender, um, 
they were often seen as being like more intuitive, more emotional, which would you know often be an argument against women being given any sorts of positions of power. But within this particular world, you know, sensitivity, um, emotion uh, was was seen as something that could be quite positive. Also, I think young women, so the Fox sisters in particular, the two youngest were were very young when they first came on the scene. Um, you know, sort of just in their teens, and, and in fact, Kate. Fox was actually slightly younger than that. Um, again, usually, you know, young women, girls essentially would not be given like a great deal of respect. But I think there was this idea that being young, they would have this innocence, they wouldn't be able to pull off, you know, the kind of mass trickery that they might otherwise have been suspected of. Of course, there were people who were skeptical about what they were doing. There were people that did feel that, um, you know, there was definitely um, trickery going on and they weren't actually contacting the dead in the way that they were presenting themselves to be doing. But um, a lot of people who did believe in their powers, I think, were quite drawn to it because of this idea of this this innate innocence that they they had. We were really interested in how. So to move into like our nuts and bolts, uh, on brand marginally uh, discussion, we're interested in how you organize your research process. Um, we really, I mean, get as specific as you want and or can about that because. Uh, a, we are very curious about it. And it's obvious that you did a ton of research, but also like listeners really like to hear about these things. So, yeah. Okay. So um, after I'd, you know, read this uh, letters from Harriet Beecher Stowe to George Eliot, and then, then, then gone back to them and started to kind of look into it a bit more. Um, I was quite lucky actually, because um, where I live in London, there's a wonderful library called Senate House Library, which has a special collections section within it. And within that section, they have um, something called the Harry Price Library of Magical Literature, um, which is just this fantastic resource, um, you know, into, well, magic, but also spiritualism and you know other things kind of related to that you know occult studies and that sort of thing and they have all sorts of um old books that are hard to get hold of anywhere else um old papers various kind of interesting artifacts so I started to go there quite regularly to find out about this this world and they all got to know me quite well because I was there every day kind of reading about spirits and, and people trying to contact spirits in the um late 19th century um and then from there once I decided on which women I wanted to focus on in the book who I should say were the Fox sisters who we've talked about already they were um, a group of sisters from upstate New York who um, kind of yeah, ex exploded onto the cultural scene in the mid 19th century and um, you know went on to have these quite illustrious careers that ended not so illustriously so it's kind of some some drama there that was quite interesting I also focused on Emma Harding Britton who I've mentioned already the sort of trance lecturer who was channeling the thoughts apparently of, of dead men Victoria Woodhull who I think Meg can mention back then um uh uh, uh childhood clairvoyant um sort of Wall Street trailblazer and, and then you know America's first female presidential candidate and then the last woman that I focused on, Georgina Weldon, um, was a British woman whose husband tried to get her locked up in an asylum. Um, 
for various reasons, but the main one really being that he wanted to pursue a relationship with another woman. And this is quite a convenient way to get rid of her. But the evidence that he really tried to use to get her put away was all very much related to her spiritualism you know he was he managed to convince um a series of doctors that this implied that she was mad and um she was very lucky actually not to be um carted off to an asylum and to be able to kind of uh yeah i guess take a sort of a revenge on her husband in a way by bringing what had happened about to her into the public eye so those are the women i focused on and, and once i had sort of decided i wanted to do that then i had to kind of look at where i would be able to find information about them um and as, as is often the case when you're researching particularly sort of lesser well-known figures you don't find their entire archive neatly in one particular place you know there's often quite a scattered archive that will be in various different libraries all over the place you know so in this case in the US but also in, in Britain so I either visited them or sometimes I was able to get me to send them to send me materials. Um, something else I always quite like to do is visit locations, you know, that appear in, in the stories of their lives to get a sense of what it might have been like. Um, and yeah, so I, I spent like a, a long time researching this and then yeah, started to shape things together into a book. But I think, you know, with, with nonfiction, you, you you do a lot of the research initially, but actually as you're doing the writing, you end up having to keep researching. I, I find people often say, oh, like, how long did you spend researching it? How long did you spend writing it? But I think actually that's often not the way things work with nonfiction. Yeah, you might do the bulk of the research first, but through drafting and redrafting, you kind of end up having to go back to, you know, new archives and or just revisit the same materials again. Yeah. How do you, how did you organize? So I'm working on a, a, well, a historical novel that has um, a lot of research that needs to go into it. Um, and I've noticed the same thing. I did a, you know, a couple of years of, of research and, and notes and everything, and now I'm going and drafting. And it's almost like I have to go back through and revisit, not just revisit my notes, but like completely re redo all of the research in a way to make it more useful. And I don't, I don't know if the, you know, I don't think that has anything to do with the way I'd organized it originally, but just more the process of drafting and how you, how you take this material and then assimilate it into a different, a different um, format. But how did you, how do you organize your, your notes and your research, especially with all of the, how often, I mean, I'm really curious and really specifics, like, how do you do transatlantic research and how do you do um, you know, the two figures that I'm focusing on are they were British. And so, and I'm in the, the States. So, you know, how do you, how did you just, how did you do it? You know, what specific, really, you know, the specifics, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I think like something that doing these, this book and also the previous book has taught me is that you need to kind of, um, establish good contacts with librarians um you know librarians can often be very very helpful um but it's kind of important to you know approach them you know, politely obviously but also with a clear sense of what what you're looking for I mean a lot of librarians and sort of museum curators and and other individuals actually went way far and beyond like what they needed to do in any way to help me and you know would sort of 
you know, I would request particular materials, but they'd be like, oh, I was looking in the archives and I found this as well. Maybe you'd like to look at this. You know, some of them, you know, went out of their way, spent a lot of time, you know, scanning documents and, uh, you know, so I think that's that's really important. Obviously, in, in many ways, you know, things have got easier because, you know, we have the internet these days, you know, and so things can be sent you know, electronically, um, it's not always a case of having to go somewhere and like literally photograph everything, although, you know, different places have different rules. Um, but yeah, that's been something that's very important to me, kind of like, um, there's lots and lots of librarians and museum staff that get thanked in the back of the book, because I definitely couldn't have written the book without them. Um, in terms of sort of organising the research, I mean, like once I kind of had enough material that I, I was like, okay, you, you know, I have enough to write a book, um, then I do, I mean, I, I keep files on my computer where I, you know, I keep sort of documents and I do make a plan of how I'm going to use the research, but it is always like quite a, a changing thing as you, as you get into the book. And sometimes the story you thought you were going to tell is not quite the one that you are going to tell because you found out different things. So I think you have to be quite flexible as well. I mean, definitely kind of trying to keep good notes of where you found everything is very important. I feel like, you know, I learned quite a lot from the experience of working on the secret sisterhood before where perhaps sometimes my note keeping wasn't quite as good as it could have been and so you know at a later date you're going back and trying to find out where you found everything so your sources at the end of the book are all all correct I think I probably did a better job of that this time because I just remembered it was a bit of a headache right at the end last time um but I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm still learning on this you know that that there's always yeah more that you can do I think to organize yourself but I, I don't have sort of any particular I know some writers have like amazing kind of technology to support them in this and kind of these really sort of super duper electronic filing systems and and I'd say mine are well, fairly well organized but but you know fairly basic as well yeah lots of word documents I'm still a fan of the word document so um yeah I appreciate that um, yeah, I just wanted to transition a little bit into the publishing um, element. So did you, how did it work on this? Because it's not your first book. So how did you, I mean, did you put together a book proposal and take it to the same people that had published your stuff before? How did that work? Um, yeah, so I, I wrote a book proposal, which was broadly quite similar to the book that actually came out. Obviously, some things did change, but it, it wasn't vastly different. You know, it was the same characters broadly followed the same arc um and I worked with the same American agent on it because the book found a publisher in 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 America um it's now being released in the UK as well but that was something that was organized much much earlier um so yeah I have sort of two agents one in in the UK and one in the US but the decision was made that it would go out on submission in the US first which is quite unusual I think for a British author but um just because you know part of the book I mean at least half of the book takes place in the US um it was felt it would you know perhaps appeal to an American audience so that was the reason why that happened um and then yeah it, it was published by a different publisher 
from last time um counterpoint press who have been absolutely fantastic um you know to to work with and also like in terms of getting the message about the book out there so I feel like very lucky um and I've had like a you know really good relationship with the editor that I've worked with there Jennifer Alton and and also just the other staff so it's been a very very positive experience actually um bringing out the book with them so you went you have the same agent you just went through the they sort of shopped it around to publisher they shopped it around you know for a while um (laughs) but then they yeah they they found someone who wanted to take it on um and then like from that point onwards it was you know relatively smooth sailing other than the fact that um I (laughs) I got pregnant partway through this um, process Um, and so I was doing some of my well even like some of my overseas research when I was uh, in the early stages of pregnancy but um, uh, that was kind of interesting because it introduced like another deadline Um, you know I had a deadline when I had to submit the book and then um, I just kind of realized that I would need to get to a certain stage with the book before the baby was born if I was ever really going to uh, manage to finish it. So I set myself a personal deadline of getting you know, a solid first draft of it finished before my baby was born, um, which I managed to do. And then I was able to take a bit of time off to obviously have the baby and kind of uh, adjust to being a mother. And then... Um, yeah, th- then I sort of submitted the book and uh, actually I'm pregnant again now, um, as, as, as you guys both know. So um, the book's been written very much in tandem with two two pregnancies, um, which, yeah, was sometimes a bit challenging, but it's also quite nice to think that these two things were going, well, yeah, two, two or three things were going on at the same time. And I know my children will always be very linked in my mind with this book. Yeah, I really, I um, like, I like that sort of idea. And I also, um, we both read your piece that you wrote about motherhood and writing this book. And it's like my favorite genre of writing advice, which is basically like things that people told you and why they're, they're not necessarily wrong, but there's maybe other comments that you have that you would like to speak back to that advice. Cause I like, there's a lot of bad advice that people give to other people. So yeah, I, I think that, I think often like when people give advice on on motherhood, it's often kindly meant, and I also think it's also very genuine for the person that's giving you that advice. You know, perhaps this is very very much their experience, but I think often in the telling, there's not quite enough acknowledgement that your life circumstances, your personality, might be completely different from theirs, and there's not really like a one way to do motherhood you know there's many ways that you can be a good mother um following quite different routes but I think a lot of um advice that you get you know on on parenting is quite sort of like one size fits all and can be quite demoralizing if you're thinking like actually I'd like to follow a slightly different path to that and I'm sort of being told like that is not open because you know it wasn't the way for you so it can't be the way for me Yeah, I think that comes up a lot. um, The idea that because I either couldn't do it or chose not to do it or felt unable to do it, then nobody should be should be able to do, you know, whatever, whether it's stay at home or have a demanding career or write a book or read a book as you you wrote in your um, 
I, I mean, I read so many books on my phone at night with, with newborn children. Like, you know, it's, everybody's different. Um, so I really like the, the, you know, Olivia and I are fond of saying you're not doing it wrong. You know, however works for you is what works for you. Um, so with that caveat in mind that for our listeners, that they're not doing it wrong, if they can't do it the way you did it, what sort of things worked for you particularly, um, to, get the revisions and work through all of the things that you had to work through after your, your child was born. Yeah. So after um, Lola, my daughter was born, um, I sort of think benefited from the fact that I had had this period when I was pregnant, when people were telling me, um, you know, how it was going to be quite impossible. Um, obviously I'd had like periods of kind of stressing about that, but then I sort of managed to channel that into um, some positivity in the sense that I thought, right, well, I, I think I'm going to need some kind of a plan. So, you know, my husband and I sort of sat down on a number of occasions and talked about how we were going to manage to do this, how I would be able to, be a mother and also write and specifically get this book finished, but also, you know, so that he would also, he was very keen to be involved with the childcare, but obviously he had a job as well. So we kind of tried to work out how we could, you know, both create enough time to do what we wanted to do with our work and also be there for our daughter. Um, we were quite lucky because my husband at the time was working quite strange hours at his job so he was often working at night so there was going to be this period when you know he he was not at work at a time when most people would would be at work so he was able to do some childcare during the day um but yeah I think ha having this sort of plan before and kind of trying to sort of think how we might be able to put our daughter onto some kind of routine so that like it was relatively easy to you know swap childcare shifts during the day would be quite helpful I mean the other thing was he was able to take um what's shared, called shared par shared parental leave uh, here in the UK um for a number of weeks which kind of really helped me when I was on you know in in the the, the hardest sort of stage of like really trying to whip the book into shape um and yeah, I mean, I mean it, it, there were times when it was quite difficult. But I think having sort of talked about it before and having had some kind of a plan, that was helpful. The other thing was he was working from home a lot, which cut down on sort of, you know, time spent commuting. Um, although I was, you know, commuting to various libraries quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I invested in a breast pump, which was also quite, quite helpful. Um, so, yeah, I could do that when I was out and about. Yeah. That is indispensable equipment. So <laughs> I, okay. Um, so the other part of your, that piece, but I think in general, I'm just curious about, you know, going forward, because it's sort of one thing, you know, you have a particular deadline uh, and you're working towards that, but I, I mean, I don't know what you're working on now and how much you want to talk about it, but uh, how, what do you think is like, your, your sustainable routine? Like, how do you want to approach your writing um, career uh, going forward? Yeah, yeah so um, I, so, so now sort of broadly speaking, um, during the week, both my husband and I have time when we do childcare and we both have time when we 
work well he's he's a writer as well he's a, he's a journalist um so his work's a little bit different from mine he's often interviewing people and and, and things that I, I don't really do as much but there's a similarity in the sense that we're both you know writing things and sort of producing um you know work um that has deadlines um and and so I, yeah I want to kind of keep doing that I mean obviously I don't know how quite how sort of having two children as opposed to one is going to change this but in a funny way I feel like less apprehensive about it than I did um the first time around because now I feel like yeah it could be a struggle to balance two children with uh, a creative career but I don't feel like this is going to be utterly impossible because you know we managed to adapt after Lola was born I mean the other thing that I worried about was was not even that side of it it was more you know people tell you th these things like you know how your brain's going to change and sort of as this awful expression mummy brain or mummy brain I guess like in the US where like um you know th this idea that when you have children like your brain sort of goes kind of like mushy and like you just can't really focus on serious things which I you know I just I, you know obviously when you're sleep deprived you do have days when you forget silly things and you know you make mistakes on things but I think that's sort of normal uh, when you're getting so little sleep um and you know in many ways at least for me any big experience in your life is going to change your way of thinking it doesn't have to be becoming a mother it could be you know a death in the family or you know some some other significant change obviously is going to open up your mind in, in in different ways so I think you know that that can be a really positive thing is maybe something we don't like focus on quite enough when we're talking about motherhood or, or parenthood yeah definitely and so much of it really is sleep deprivation uh and and if you can work with it in that way rather than thinking of it as you know because you're a parent and not because you're not sleeping uh, it it definitely changes your perspective and really for me anyway and my two are much older they're almost 11 and eight now so um but they it it can make it easier to handle you know when you're in the short term and i think i think you're right for the with the second one you know that it's survivable and you know that you can adapt and you know that whatever you're going through is not going to last forever for better or for worse um it's so much easier to just relax and see. So I think you're, you know, I hope that's encouraging anyway. But you're well, thank you. Yeah, I think it is good to try and remember, you know, things are just a phase, you know, uh, which can be hard to remember sometimes when you're in the middle of, you know, um, a particularly rough patch perhaps with, you know, not sleeping or suddenly, you know, Charles suddenly decided to to refuse all this food that they they loved before you know but I think yeah someone said to me quite early on you know almost all of these things are just a phase and if you can just kind of keep that in your head um and I think often you know when you look back actually the phase was actually relatively short it was maybe just a few weeks but you know sometimes when you're in it you, you feel like it might go on forever so I think that's this really good advice yeah. And when you've never been through it before, you don't know how long it is going to last. So you can say, well, I, you know, I, intellectually, I know it's going to end, but I've never seen the end before. So I, you know, I don't know. It's, you know, in a way it's sort of like drafting a book, like you feel like each time through it's going to take forever and ever. And then 
you get through it and you realize, like you said, looking back, like, oh, you know, I, I made it through that time. So um, do you find that you are better with your time now than you were before? Yes, most, yeah, largely. I think, you know, there was a period like after Lola had been born where I just thought, you know, what was I doing with myself before she came along? And of course, that's not really true. There were many things that I was doing then that I'm not really able to do now because obviously I think you have to kind of focus in on what's really important. Um, but, you know, when you know you've only got a limited amount of time before you're going to hand your child over to your partner or, you know, um, to, to whoever, um, it does kind of make you kind of just get focused and, and and sit down and not spend ages, you know, procrastinating and going off and making a cup of tea. And, you know, um, obviously there, there, there are still days when it, it takes me ages to get words down on paper. I do still have days like that. There are probably fewer of them because I feel like my time's very, very precious now in a way that perhaps I, I didn't quite feel like that before. Yeah, I, I don't have kids, but the days when I feel like a real writer, like the romantic version of my head, or like the days where I f- like faff around in my emails for like a couple of hours, you know, and you just like read the newsletters that you get. And now I'm like, and then settle down to writing. And then I'm like, oh, I'm a real writer today. Like, you know, which is obviously nonsense. All real writers are working to deadlines and everything else. But yeah you do have this myth that sometimes that you need all of this like time but actually I think having concentrated bursts of time and then letting some of the free-flowing things fill other space like blank space in a work day or you know that period where you're I don't know feeding a baby or something like that like letting that be empty space like you can use empty space in different ways once you have other commitments basically yeah and I think I think you know um Obviously, it's great to actually be sitting down and you know re- really able to focus on work. But um, y- you do sometimes, I think, in that redrafting process, just sometimes it just takes time to find a solution to a problem, doesn't it? And sometimes actually kind of having that space, doing something else, whether it's, you know, going for a walk or, you know, yeah, like looking after your child, doing something that's you know, re- not enormously mentally taxing. Um, it does often just free up that sort of headspace where you're not really thinking about this problem that you're having with your work, but it's sort of there in the background and suddenly, you know, a solution does just pop in. Um, so I think bearing that in mind can be helpful and, and probably also carrying a notebook so you can scribble down um, or, you know, even if it's just on your phone, like scribble down a note before that thought flashes away again, I think can be, yeah, definitely, uh, yeah, very, very useful. Yeah, definitely. Well, I was just wondering what else you have going on right now. Um, Cause I know you teach sometimes and how does that, what's. Yeah. So I usually teach at New York University's London campus. Although actually this, this semester I've actually been furloughed because of the coronavirus. So I would normally have been going back to work in September, but um, because I'm having my baby next month, I'm going to take a period of maternity leave after that. So, um, yeah, the idea is I'll, I'll take a bit of time off pretty much like over the summer, although, you know, I'll probably still be doing like bits and bobs of things, but then um, trying to sort of recommit myself properly to writing in the autumn um, and, yeah, then eventually going back to work at, at New York University London at a, at a slightly later date um so at the moment I mean I, you know the book's only 
it came out in the US like a couple of weeks ago now. It's like I've slightly lost track of the time it came out in the UK just a few days ago. Um, so I'm sort of mainly focused on, you know, doing things like this interview and like, you know, just kind of trying to get the word out there about the book. I do have um, an idea, well, a couple of different ideas, actually, of things I want to work on next. One is a nonfiction idea. One's a fiction idea, um, both set in a similar period to this book, um, but with quite different subject matter. But I haven't really committed to either of those projects yet so I kind of you know I've, I've done some initial research and um, jotting down of ideas but I really need to get some headspace and that's probably something that's not going to come straight away because my baby's going to be born <laughs> at some point in the next month or so so um, yeah this is something that's just kind of going to be there in the background but but not that I'm really actively working on for a little while yet. Can you tell us what that period looks like for you I mean this sort of fallow period where you're letting the you know the soil renourish itself I don't know what kind of metaphor I want to go with with this but um how how do you let yourself not work on you like not decide I don't know if this is a problem for you but it definitely is a like I'll think I'll find an idea I'm like yes that's the idea without maybe critically assessing it and there could be 10 other ideas or I might try to start all of them so how do you sort of play with ideas and not in it? So I think like when you have a nonfiction idea, there, there are some, there are sort of some curbs on doing what, what you said, because usually the way that it would, well, with, with most nonfiction projects, I think probably you would try to um, find a publisher for it perhaps before it got published. That might not happen, but you, you know, that would often be your aim because I think nonfiction projects often involve research and there are costs involved with research. So it's quite nice, you know, to know well, what sort of budget have I got to work with here? You know, can I even afford to do this book? Um, so I guess like writing a proposal gives you the chance to sort of road test that idea. And if you can't even get the proposal written because it's too much of a mess, then you kind of maybe need to rethink the idea of doing the book. I think with fiction, you know, the, the standard way to sell a book, although obviously there are authors who do manage to sell it on, a, on an early idea, particularly if they're quite successful already, you know, the standard way would be to write the book first and then try and sell it. So in a way, that's like a bit more of a leap of faith isn't it because you know you have to sort of work out in your mind you know is this a story that I could write uh, is it the sort of story that someone would actually want to read um, and you I don't know I mean books change as well so much during the writing of them so I think there there is always going to be that element of having to just make that jump before you really know if this project is really going to work or not I think that's one of the quite hard things about being a writer um, you know you might have an agent or you might have friends that you can talk to about this idea but you're not working with a huge team of people from the beginning you know it's a little bit different say from being I, I don't know a, a writer for like a, a hit show on Netflix or something like that where um, that probably comes with all its own frustrations but you you know you're sort of you've seen this project the, the whole team of people working on it and kind of 
talking about different ideas and kind of sort of trying to um, find this kind of route ahead for it. Whereas I think when you're working on a solo project, like there may be people you can bounce ideas off, but there is going to be a lot of sitting on your own in a room, trying to make the ideas work, trying to make the language work. And there'll be days when you feel like it's really flowing and days when you feel like, you know, why did you start on this thing? Which I think actually happens with almost any project at some point. There's always a point partway through the writing when you start to think, I don't know why, why I began this project, you know, um, I don't know where it's going. I don't know if anyone will ever want to read it, even if I can finish it. Nope, totally not familiar at all. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Um, so when you were here before, you were here with Emma Claire Sweeney and you two have a, you know, it's, it's one thing to be friends. It's a whole other thing to have a long-term project with the friend where you're sharing responsibilities and working together. Um, and so it was really fun to talk to you. What are the sort of things, um, that you do to manage that, that not having that team, you know, what sort of team have you built for yourself? So it was like an amazing experience working on The Secret Sisterhood with Emma. It was like also like quite an intense experience because, you know, um, there was lots of you know, late nights where we'd be sort of sitting up writing together after everyone had gone to sleep. And, you know, it was just this quite all consuming world towards the end of the drafting process. Like initially we were working in separate houses and sharing things like via email or, um, you know, talking about things over the phone. But in the end like Emma pretty much sort of moved into my house for a few weeks and we just spent like days working it's very kind of like um close way on 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 manuscripts kind of you know we'd, we'd written all the chapters but we were kind of fine-tuning the language and yeah just sort of staying up for hours and having quite heated debates about you know I mean, sometimes like points of argument, but it could also sometimes just be a turn of phrase or like, you know, whether to put a comma here or, you know, um, <laughs> getting really into kind of the nitty gritty. And there were times, where I'm, Emma wouldn't mind me saying this, I'm sure, you know, there were times occasionally when you think, oh, this is so frustrating. Like I was just working on this on my own, like we could get through this quicker. And that is definitely true in a way. But actually when I was working on this book, I sort of missed having Emma there because you don't have that person to road test things with all the time. I felt when we handed in our drafts of a secret sisterhood, you know, everything had been talked through between us. Um, you know, there might've been times actually when jointly we ended up making, you know, th there could have been other decisions that we made, but, you know, we were very, very sure that we'd made like sort of the right decisions for us and everything had kind of been like argued out and sort of agreed on. Um, I mean, I was able to turn to Emma, like in the process of, of writing this book as well. And you know, she would read drafts of it, give great feedback. And, um, you know, occasionally also just when I was drafting on my own, I would sort of hear Emma's voice in my head kind of say, like, oh, you know, do you really think that, you know, what, could you do this in a slightly different way? So she was sort of there, but obviously not in like the very kind of intense physical way that um, she was there, like for the drafting of a secret sisterhood. So, um, yeah, I mean, I missed that and I, I um, you know sometimes it would feel like you were doing this in a more kind of lonely way but I mean I, I was able to call on Emma I had other um, friends as well that I showed early drafts to um, my husband also reads my drafts and he was able to give feedback as well um, so it wasn't like I was entirely on my own but definitely more so than than 
with the previous book and another thing like um when you're doing like the publicity side of things or not like interviews like this that are kind of so so friendly but like um you know sometimes when you're doing events and perhaps particularly then you're having to travel for an event which is again less less um, the case at the moment because of like coronavirus restrictions it's quite nice to share these things with somebody else rather than doing them on your own that was going to be my other oh yeah question about creative community so as usual I think Megan and I have got to a point where we pretty much like read each other's minds when we're doing these interviews <laughs> yeah yeah um well to take Olivia's read Olivia's mind and take her other questions so we're mindful of time um but is there anything we've been trying to wrap up by one you know give you a chance to share anything that you haven't had gotten a chance to to you know answer yet but also is there anything that you're just really interested in right now it doesn't have to be anything to do with your work but just in general like what's really we we have a thing about you know really trying to encourage each other and ourselves and other people to pursue something that just whatever wild interest they have and not think about it from a what can I produce from this interest but just in general so we're really always really curious about what sorts of weird things you're you're personally curious about that maybe have nothing to do with work at all? Um, well, so in addition to um, having a baby during working on this book and then getting pregnant again, um, the, the other sort of big change over the last year has been we've moved into a new house in a new area of London. Um, and so that was just at the beginning of this year, just, just got to throw that into the mix as well in the run up to the book coming out. Um, we kind of felt like we wanted a bit more space because we've you know, got another another kid on the way. Um, and but we moved in during the middle of, of uh, yet another UK wide lockdown. So it was quite a, a strange experience. We moved in in the winter. Um, when you're probably not seeing the local area at its best anyway. And also everything was closed pretty much. And um, so what I'm really kind of looking forward to doing over the summer once I've you know managed to give birth and sort of you know get um, on a bit more of an even keel with that is really kind of getting to know the area of London that we're in, both in, in terms of just like in ordinary ways, but also um, getting to know something about the history of the area, which I'm always really interested in. Um, we have this like wonderful old Victorian cemetery near us that's kind of full of, um, it's kind of almost like a, a nature reserve in a way, you know, just beautiful walks there. But also I always, I actually always really enjoy visiting cemeteries because I think there's so many kind of like old stories there and, you know, on the gravestones and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of really looking forward to getting out and about in this part of London and exploring a lot more. So that's the thing I'm really looking forward to over this summer when hopefully the weather's improved a bit as well. It's been an absolutely dire year for, for weather in, in, in the UK, just nonstop rain. And it feels like it's never going to warm up, but, but hopefully it will at some point. I really hope we turn a corner because um, it's been just like all year, like windy, rainy, awful. It's the opposite of last year. So, yeah. I also wanted to say Senate House, 
I only know from my master's where I was like going for like war studies or, you know, international relations. So it's like a whole other side to Senate house. I was not aware of, and I'm very excited <laughs> about this like amazing magic collection. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Um, again, you know, these libraries have been locked down really for the last year or so. I mean, there's been periods when they've been open, but they've been open under restrictions as you knew is the case with with all sorts of academic libraries and, and sort of general public libraries as well so it'll be wonderful when all of these things open up again and people feel comfortable to go and use them in, in an ordinary sort of way I, I, I definitely feel very lucky with my book that I managed to get most of the initial research done before all this started because I yeah if if if, if, if I'd been sort of a year behind with the research it would have really been impossible to continue mm -hmm. because even sort of writing to libraries and asking, you know, you know, can you send me things? Sometimes, sometimes they were just like, I'm afraid we can't because the, you know, the, there's no one going into the building to access these things. And that really only happened with a couple of things, you know, just, just pictures that I was hoping to use in the book, you know, wasn't the end of the world, but if that had been like, you know, a cache of letters um, related to one of the women, that would have been like a big problem. I guess it's a good point. Like maybe there will be a kind of period where there won't be any historic nonfiction, like for two years, right? Because this kind of weird one or two year period in the middle where nobody could get any research done. Yeah. It's really awesome. crazy. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank you. It's been really enjoyable. It's been lovely to have this chat again. And I'm glad we've managed to kind of keep in touch through, you know, Instagram and that that sort of thing. It's it's been really nice to kind of, yeah have this link since since the last the last podcast that we did which was you know, a while ago now yeah. it was a while ago we are yeah sorry megan oh no i was gonna say i think the last time it was right before lolo was born so yeah yeah just to catch you both times yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah we're huge fans of your book so um it's been great staying in touch and um so yeah thank you well yeah, thank you very much thank you thanks and, and best of luck with your projects as well and that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia, so excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for coming on our show again. Uh, our show. Our podcast. <laughs> <laughs>